When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Welcome along to another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can listen to brand new episodes every Thursday, so make sure to subscribe. This week we're making history at Stonehenge, as the UNESCO World Heritage Site marks its first ever Festival of Neolithic Ideas on the 11th and 12th of November. Joining us now to tell us more about the event and how our understanding of Stonehenge is continuing to develop are Properties Historian for Prehistory, Dr Jennifer Wexler, and Dr Dominique Bouchard, who's Head of Learning and Interpretation. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Hi, Charles. Well, let's look at English Heritage's first ever Festival of Neolithic Ideas then and how it all came about. What exactly is it, Dominique? Well, as your listeners will know, Stonehenge is probably one of English heritage's, or possibly even England's most famous historical sites. And there's so much that we know about Stonehenge, and there's so much that we don't know about it. And the the Festival of Neolithic Ideas is a two-day celebration at Stonehenge, where we get up close and personal with prehistoric peoples who built and used Stonehenge. So at the festival, visitors are going to have a chance to meet experts and scientists from our partners at Cambridge University, who are co-hosting the festival with us, and from other universities around the country, as well as our own, our very own experts at English Heritage. So you'll be able to attend talks and demonstrations from people who know as much as anyone does about the Neolithic and Bronze Age societies. And at the end, we hope that visitors are going to come away and look at Stonehenge through their eyes to see Stonehenge and understand it a little more in the way that its builders did, you know, but informed by the latest and the most exciting academic research. A festival of ideas is a new format for us. And when we think about ideas, we tend to think about very clever people kind of resting their chins on their hands in contemplation. But And that doesn't really match our stereotype of people in the Neolithic period, but part of what we want to explore is that people in the in the Neolithic and Bronze Age were people that were just like us. So we want to get into the perspective of those prehistoric people a bit and understand the ideas they had about the world around them. Okay, so for people who aren't familiar with the terminology of prehistory and maybe are dipping into this podcast for the first time, and if you're a new listener, welcome along. Um, when we talk about Neolithic, what sort of time frame is this? in prehistory and how were people living back then jennifer when we talk about the neolithic it neolithic literally means the sort of new stone age or the very end of the stone age and the way archaeologists historically have kind of created you know sort of time periods within archaeology is by the primary type of technology materials that people use so it was a period when people were using stone tools but What's really interesting about this period is it's a time when lots of people are starting to move around and we get a wave of of people with a new technology, a new type of lifestyle, which is farming, the start of farming, which originates in the Middle East and the Fertile Crescent and very slowly comes across Europe, eventually coming to the British Isles around 
6,000 years ago. So we get this new group of people with this new lifestyle and they're early farmers and they're also sort of pastoralists, what we call pastoralists or people who keep animals, domesticate animals. So pigs and cows and are probably moving seasonally with these animals. So places like Stonehenge become really important as monuments in the landscape, kind of anchors in the landscape that people are coming to for sort of seasonal celebrations. And this goes on for a couple thousand years until we get the next wave of people with a new technology, which is metalworking. And that's the start of the Bronze Age around 4,200 years ago. And what specific ideas do we think that the builders of Stonehenge might have had, Dominique, about their existence? For me, one of the things that is most striking about the builders of Stonehenge and, and Stonehenge, the monument itself, is some of the ideas are really relatable to us and things that I guess anybody that, that's done any even DIY will be familiar with. So for example, at Stonehenge, the lintels on top of the, you know, the, the sarsen stones that are in the ground, the, many of them have lintels across them. The lintels are remarkably level. And that didn't happen by accident. In fact, it's pretty difficult to accomplish. So today, you know, civil engineers will use spirit levels and lasers and all kinds of technology. But the question of how you put a series of 25-ton stones into deep holes in uneven ground such that you can lower another 25-ton stone on top of it and its level is just really remarkable and something that I think is really relatable. So this idea of, of that being level is important and it's something that's of course very ancient, but something of course that, you know, listeners will be familiar with themselves. And so, you know, the builders of Stonehenge set out to achieve that effect and they did. And it was an idea that they had. And you know, four thousand years later, five thousand years later, we're still admiring how well their idea turned out. They were sophisticated engineers. And so that's the kind of thing that we're exploring with the festival of, of Neolithic ideas. We want to bring those ideas to the fore and help people really connect to those people in the past. Mm, yes. And when you said lintels, that's the horizontal part of the stone, the horizontal stones that go on top of the two upright stones. That's right. That's exactly right. So what do we know about the way that Neolithic people understood Stonehenge and also its environment, Jennifer? It's really interesting because, as Dominique said, this is such an important and striking monument because it's an engineered monument. And that's why it's it's so unique from this period of time. And people are still in awe of it. And and I think what's really important to also point out is Stonehenge is, is not only one monument. It's part of a whole landscape of monuments that go back to those first farmers that came over and people were putting important places, you know, important things within this landscape for a long period of time. And Stonehenge itself actually was built and altered and and revered for over a thousand years. And that's over a hundred generations in that period of time. So a lot of energy was put into creating this striking place. But what's really interesting is, is that at the end of the Neolithic, we see this kind of rise of these ceremonial complexes these kind of grand scale um, monuments being built in the landscape across the whole of Britain and Ireland. But Stonehenge is the only really heavily engineered monument where you would have had to build it, that that lintels on the top would have been a planned sort of structure. And, and one of the things that's really fascinating about this is that we think that some of the technology they use was based on woodworking. Um, so they might've had wooden monuments 
where they trialed some of these ideas earlier on. And and we know, for example, in the Stonehenge landscape, just a few kilometers up the road at Durrington Walls, there was wooden circles. So they might have had a similar shape. So this was something that people were spending a lot of time working out how to build such a complex monument. And I guess the question is, why? Why put the, all the effort in? Why build such a complex monument? And I think the thing is, is, is that these were places that they were honoring the ancestors and also marking really important moments in, in the calendar, in, in the sort of yearly cycles. And we know it's a place to honor the ancestors because the first version of Stonehenge, which was a much more simple circle, just the outer earthworks of the circle and a series of pits, maybe with, with stone or wooden posts, was a cemetery, a, a cremation cemetery that was the largest cemetery in Neolithic Britain at that time. So that was 500, 500 years before the stone circle was put up. But when they put the stone circle up, what's really fascinating is that they aligned it to the sun. And the sun is really at the heart of the monument, these key sort of solstice alignments, which connect to those key moments in the calendar year. And we think that enshrines a kind of belief around the sun. And also, if you think about it, it makes sense. These are early farming communities, understanding the sun, but also maybe the power of it as a religious kind of icon in a way was was important. It, the dying and rebirth of the light was how they would survive the year. They would need that light for their animals, for their crops. So it's not unheard of that they were connecting to this. And we see this across monuments from this period of time across the British Isles. Yes, because we should probably explain that, um, isn't it at the winter solstice that the sun sort of sets does it slot into one of the... Yeah, so this, the, we think the winter sunset was actually the key moment and it yeah. sets behind the tallest trilithon. So that's the three tallest stones at the center of the circle. At the center of the circle is a, is a horseshoe-shaped set of stones and there's one very, very tall trilithon now partially fallen down. So we don't completely have the effect now, but it would set behind those trilithons. And what's really fascinating about it is that they created a processional way that you would have approached the monument. So especially if you're coming from a couple kilometers up the road in Durrington Walls, where you might have had been having feasting in the winter, you were approaching the monument and seeing that kind of altar, a sense, just as you would when you approach the church, you, you see the holiest point as you come in, if that makes sense. It's the same thing. You're looking at the most holy point as you're coming up to the monument and that key moment of sun setting. And then the summer, we have the opposite. We have the sun rising behind the heelstone just outside on the edge of the circle. So we have the full alignment, this sort of two ends of the spectrum of the sun cycle within the monument itself. The sun is central to the celebrations that um, we think took place there, basically. Yes, exactly. So it should almost be called Sunstonehenge, <laughs> um, <laughs> as opposed to just Stonehenge. Okay, that's really interesting. So just going back to this idea of the festival itself and how people can get involved in it, what should people expect when they arrive for this two-day event? And who is it also aimed at, Dominique? So I think we want visitors to come with an open mind and lots of curiosity. You know, we know a lot about Stonehenge, but there's still so much we don't know, and we're constantly learning about it. As you mentioned, it's a World Heritage Site, and in World Heritage jargon, Stonehenge, like all World Heritage Sites, have something called outstanding universal value. And what that means, and or how it's defined, is that it's 
a cultural and or natural significance, which is so exceptional as to transcend national boundaries and to be of common importance for present and future generations of all humanity. And I think it's worth pausing a second to think about in relation to this festival, in relation to the audiences and people who might want to come to this, what audiences should should expect is to be able to let their imaginations and, and curiosity lead them to think about the ways in which the ideas that Stonehenge throws up have relevance for present people today and people in the future and for people everywhere. And I think that's really inspiring and really exciting. And so when they come, when you know, if you come to the festival, visitors are going to meet people who have dedicated their work to understanding this incredible mark of human achievement. And I want to stress that for audiences, you don't need to know anything about Stonehenge at all to come to the festival or to enjoy it. You know, it's an opportunity to explore and have conversations that wouldn't otherwise be possible. And it's for, you know, visitors of all ages. There are going to be hands-on activities for everyone, from children to adults, for people who might pop in because they've seen Stonehenge from the road many times, but have never visited as well as people who we hope will make a special visit for the festival and who've been to Stonehenge previously. There's going to be all sorts of new ideas, new research, people who you wouldn't necessarily have met because these are researchers who are focused on, you know, on Stonehenge in this period. And so it's a really unique opportunity for all of these people to come together and for visitors to have kind of unfettered access to all of that knowledge and expertise and to be able to really get hands-on with that information, with that with that research and with those people. How does the ticketing for this Festival of Ideas work then? Is it separate from a normal ticket that you would buy when you arrive on site? Or if you buy a ticket on site, do you get access to the festival? That's right. So admission to the festival is included with admission to Stonehenge. There's no special tickets required. There's no special access required. All you need to do is come to Stonehenge on the day. I think there's a discount if you pre-book. And of course, members can come to Stonehenge for free at any time they like. So if you book a, a ticket to Stonehenge or if you visit Stonehenge on either day of the festival, so that's the Saturday or the Sunday, then you have access to the entirety of the festival program. I will say not not all of the activities are available on both days. So there's a schedule that's published on the event page on our website. So if there's something that you're particularly interested in, have a look at the schedule so you make sure that you, you go to Stonehenge on the, on the day that, that that activity is taking place. Okay, that's worth knowing. So when people walk into the visitor centre then, what will they see and hear that makes the experience a little bit different from a usual visit, Dominique? So the festival activities are taking place all around the, the visitor campus at Stonehenge. So after you get your ticket, visitors will be able to see a schedule of activities and there are going to be volunteers and, uh, and staff on hand who are going to be able to help people find what they're interested in. There are four main locations where things are going to be happening. So in the main exhibition, which people will, will be you know familiar with, we're creating what we're calling a demo zone near the Neolithic village. And there's going to be a marquee at the back of the visitor center near where the coach takes you to the stones and you know to pick you up and drops you off. And then more activities are going to be taking place in the education space, which is near the coach park. So most people, when they arrive, the cafe will be and the shop are off to your left and the exhibition is off to the right. So you can go into the exhibition and then just on the other side of the covered area, people will see the Neolithic villages where we have the replica 
Neolithic huts and their activities taking place in or around there. That's that's what we're calling the demo zone. And then off to the, the left-hand side is going to be a big marquee where the more activities are taking place. So it'll be really clear, but we'll also make sure that there's loads of information for visitors to be able to access. So they should, shouldn't have any trouble finding the stuff that they're most interested in. We do recommend, though, just having a look at the schedule on the website in advance to make sure that you know exactly, so you can think about what you might want to see and do, because there's going to be a lot on. Yes, it sounds but like there's it, lot, a lot to digest and look at and read and watch and interact with in, in general. Will the festival enhance, then, visitors' understanding of the site and also in new ways, do you think, Jennifer? I think so, because what we're really featuring here is groundbreaking research. I mean, I have to say, looking through the schedule, I'm super excited (laughs) myself because I get to also come go around and sort of talk to people and play with things. And and so, for example, we have Wessex Archaeology there. Wessex Archaeology is one of the most prominent archaeological units that work extensively in Salisbury Plain. And so they're really at the cutting edge of, you know, every time a new project is kind of happens in Salisbury Plain in the greater sort of Wiltshire area, they're involved. So it'd be really exciting for people to get to see firsthand some of these discoveries and learn about some of these amazing ways that we've been using, using scientific techniques to understand the people of Stonehenge going back, you know, thousands of years ago. And I think the thing is, is, you know, a lot of times you get the headlines in the newspapers, oh, they've discovered, you know, where the Saracen stones are from, or they've discovered this ancient DNA, but you don't actually get a full understanding from the scientists themselves. So, So this is a real opportunity for people to come and really engage in those dialogues around how archaeologists discover these new information, this new data about the past. And you know, actually have a hands-on experience around that. Yes, it's almost like the general public is suddenly being invited to a scientific conference in a way. Uh, completely, is, completely. Yeah, yeah which is really nice. Ho- hopefully in the most fun way possible. <laughs> Absolutely, in a very accessible way. But so who are, the, who are these experts that people can speak to and listen to at the festival and what kind of activities will they take part in? So we'll, of course, have our own English heritage experts, including Jennifer, as well as curators and other experts. So that's going to be a great opportunity for visitors to meet English heritage experts who they might not, who often work behind the scenes and aren't necessarily out in front of the public as as much as we'd like to be. But we also have experts and researchers from universities across England. So I hope you know visitors are going to feel a bit spoiled for choice. University of Cambridge, who are co-hosting the festival with us, are going to be there, and they've got a, we, they're going to have a, a prominent role with loads of different types of research that they're featuring around bones and metal, computational models, you know, asking questions about where do we come from and that deep history of people. We'll also have researchers from as Jennifer mentioned, the heritage sector and research institutes. So the Francis Crick Institute, the Green Hatch Group that does laser scans, very cool stuff. They're going to be bringing materials and people are going to get to try some of that stuff out. Manchester Metropolitan University, University of Exeter, University of Bournemouth, Cardiff. I mean, we've really brought people from around the country together. And I think, as you said, it's, it's going to be kind of a conference, but it's not going to be an academic conference. The idea is to really get people to understand what the sorts of research questions are. So, so what that means practically, so there's going to be a pop-up planetarium 
being hosted by Bournemouth University. And the idea for that is that, you know, the sun and the moon and the stars played a really important role in the beliefs and practices of, of all past societies. And so inside this inflatable planetarium, visitors are going to be able to be taken through the cyclical patterns of celestial objects and talk about how astronomy was important and used at sites like Stonehenge. You know, what did the skyscape mean for prehistoric people? I think that's pretty cool. Cardiff is going to be doing a pop-up prehistoric supermarket that they're calling Stonehenge Berries, where (laughs) shopkeepers are going to introduce visitors to plants and animals that caused a food revolution over 5,000 years ago. Um, They're talking about planning an ancient feast or visitors could be trying what they're calling a prehistoric food processor. I have no idea what that is, but it sounds really (laughs) exciting. Um, Or take an ancient recipe home. And the Francis Crick Institute is going to be looking at genetic data that helps us ask questions about, you know, what makes a family? I think one of the things that's really interesting for me about Stonehenge and all of this research is that it's all very scientifically driven research. And we often make the connection that scientific research yields scientific information. But scientific research is so important in building our understanding of of history and in helping us understand the past and and the humanities. So, you know, when we're talking about this DNA research that the Francis Crick Institute is going to be sharing, it's going to help us understand about the people who built and developed Stonehenge, you know, 5,000, 4,500 years ago, and understanding the concepts of family. You know, was it important for them to be buried close together after they died? And the genetic data gathered from the ancestors of the people who built Stonehenge is beginning to tell us how people buried in large tombs were related to each other. And that is something that's so relatable, I think, to people today, that sense of family. And and the more that we can do as a heritage charity to help people connect and see the, the present day relevance of these places the better we're we're doing in our in our conservation mission to make sure that you know future generations value these places and look after them. So this festival is really going to connect people with lots of research, but we also hope that it'll it'll open their eyes to a whole new way of thinking about heritage, about heritage research, and and of course about Stonehenge. And I hope we'll, people will encounter things that they hadn't thought of before because that's that's the fun bit of a festival of ideas. Yes, and also about the story of one part of the global family that is the early people who lived in Britain. So I think that's an interesting study of just human nature and human behaviour as well. I think that's uh, interesting questions. And also, I suppose, is it possible that beliefs have changed uh, through the development of Stonehenge? Because, you know, it did develop over thousands of years, didn't it? So perhaps beliefs changed with the times as well. Is that an important question to ask? No, I think it certainly did. Um, it's it's a place that has changed and evolved over thousands of years, and and you can see that just from the archaeological monuments. But what the thing is, the science is starting to tell us is is really in depth knowledge that we didn't have before. We were kind of guessing at, as Dominique was saying, we were guessing at the people, where they came from, their family relationships, migrations, things like that. That now we actually through the scientific information we can know for sure. So it really is a revolution that's happened in archaeology. And Stonehenge certainly reflects that probably more than many monuments because the level of archaeological use, the richness, archaeological richness of the landscape, it's just kind of fascinating how people have, you know, evolved 
in this place. And I, and I think the best analogy I, I always have is if you look at some of our cathedrals or our churches, you know, we still use cathedrals that are over a thousand years old, but they're not, you know, they're not just ancient monuments. They're places that have a modern mark, a modern evolution to them. You know, we might add things to them that mean something to us now. And, and Stonehenge is the same. It's just because we don't have the written record. We need these scientific techniques to really give us this innovative information about, about the place. I guess English heritage also needs the public to sort of have that curiosity and maybe think of questions that maybe haven't been thought of yet and pass them on to the experts and, and that sort of thing and give the experts extra things to think about. Indeed. And actually, I think that's also a really wonderful thing because we don't have all the answers. We're still trying to find the answers and, and sometimes coming at it from a different angle, which the public might, you know, um, having different ideas about something is a way of, of inspiring new inspirations, you know, new yeah. insights into place. So this festival is also part of a dialogue with the public around these discoveries and things that we can all research and enjoy and look at together. You mentioned as well, Jennifer, that this is, uh, you were talking about revolutionary times back in the uh, Neolithic, but this is kind of quite revolutionary, this event, is it not? Um, is it the first time that this sort of festival is happening at Stonehenge? Is it quite a rare, a rare thing? I think it, it it is, and I will I will defer to Dominique to give you give you more information. But um, you know, this is in some ways ex- experimental for English heritage as well, isn't it, Dominique? Absolutely. Uh, we haven't done a lot of events like the Festival of Neolithic Ideas in the past, but we. We hope to do more of them in the future. And, you know, we want visitors to connect with the incredible stories of our sites in lots of different ways. And so the opportunity to bring visitors face to face with people who are doing research, which is up to the moment, is an incredible opportunity and will give people a really fresh insight into our work as a charity, but also into the the stories of these monuments. So this is a kind of new departure for us, but we do hope that, you know, people are going to be excited about it as we are and that we can build on it in the future. Now, looking at this sort of science of prehistory, how have advances in science revolutionized our understanding of archaeology and Stonehenge, Jennifer? Well, I think what's really fascinating is that over the last 20 years or so, there really has been a scientific revolution in archaeology, in the way we've gone, we go about studying archaeology, and it's told us an incredible um, new amount of information about the archaeological record. And you know, as we mentioned before, you know, we're working in a time period, you know, the Neolithic and the Bronze Age. We sadly do not have written records, so the archaeological record is the remains that we we dig up or we find in the ground is all we have to really study. So to have scientific techniques to study these in more detail is incredibly important. And um, Stonehenge, because it's such an archaeological rich landscape, has given us a huge amount of information about the past, the periods of time going back, you know, 5,000 years ago. And I think the story that has been really, really startling to both archaeologists and the public is that story of ancient DNA and also what we call isotope analysis. And the reason this is so fascinating is because, as Dominique was mentioning before, it tells us a lot about human relationships, the way families are related, the way people were moving around landscapes and using these places. But with Stonehenge, it's a really fascinating story. And it literally has changed our ideas about the people involved at the monument and around in the landscape of the monument. And um, what sort of changed it was a, a discovery from 20 years ago called the Amesbury Archer. It was excavated during a, the building of a housing development in Amesbury. So just 
three miles down the road from Stonehenge, so on Salisbury Plain. They did not expect to find this discovery. And basically, it's the richest grave from the very, very start of the Bronze Age. And this person, who we call the Amesbury Archer, named after where he was discovered, he was found with this amazing array of grave goods, including an archer's kit, so arrowheads and a wrist guard that proves that he probably had this kind of archer status, which was almost like a equivalent of a medieval knight, you know, sort of um, a kind of elite status. But he had also beautiful pottery that we call beaker pottery, and he had very, very early metal, possibly the earliest metal that we have from the record, archaeological record from this period of time. And this goes back about 4,200 years ago. And he has these gold hair ornaments and these copper daggers that probably came from the Iberian Peninsula, so Spain um, or Portugal. But what's really fascinating about him is when they started doing analysis of what we call isotopes. Now, isotope is a type of chemical analysis you can do on bones or teeth. And it looks at the molecules they get into your teeth and your bones. It's a little bit complicated to explain. When you're a child, based on the water and the food you've eaten, and across the world, there are different sort of levels of oxygen and nitrogen that can be measured. So this gets sort of into your teeth and bones and you can measure it. And based on that, we know that this man, this archer, um, came from the Alps, probably the Swiss Alps, over 4,000 years ago and ended up being buried very close to Stonehenge. So this is a fascinating story. This is a story that we couldn't have told over 20 years ago. I mean, this is all very new data. So we know that people are coming from long, long distance to the Stonehenge area very early on. And he was coming right when the final versions of Stonehenge was being built. Was he connected to it? I mean, he would have been a magician. He would have been possibly one of the first metal workers coming here. And really, he's the start of this wave of migration that comes from Europe at the start of of the Bronze Age, we know now, and this is only based on DNA research, we know this, that we get a new group of people again coming at the start of the Bronze Age with this metalworking technology. This is something archaeologists have argued over for over 100 years, and it's only through this kind of isotope and DNA analysis that we we know this. And, and another fascinating part of that story is buried next to the Amesbury Archer is another man, a younger man, and they've been looking at the relationship between the two. We always assumed maybe father and son, they had similar physiology, their skeletons had some particularities that were very similar. But now, originally, they couldn't get DNA from this second burial because there wasn't enough sort of um, that was preserved. But now, because the DNA technology has improved so much over the last 20 years, they have been able to get DNA from both skeletons. And they realize that this probably, the second burial was probably a great or great-great-grandson, or possibly a sort of extended cousin. Mm. Isotope analysis has shown that this second burial, this person was born on Salisbury Plain and probably lived in their childhood, but they traveled during their childhood back to Europe, spent some time there, and then came back again and was buried next to his great or great-great-grandfather. So this shows incredible picture suddenly of family relationships spreading into Europe and back again, people moving around. I mean, this is incredible information. This is information we couldn't tell you 20 years ago. So this is really mind-blowing. And now researchers going, are going back to some of these old museum collections. You know, around Stonehenge, we have over 400 burial mounds that are from the start of the Bronze Age. 
And so it's this massive, it's, it's one of the largest cemeteries in Europe from, from the start of the Bronze Age, so going back about 4,000 years ago. But a lot of these were excavated by antiquarians, so they're excavated in the 18th, 19th century, and they're in museum collections. And, and so one of the researchers, Tom Booth from the Francis Crick Institute, a- along with other colleagues, has been looking at these old museum collections. These collections are over 200 years old and reanalyzing the bones and, and extracting tiny, tiny little bits of DNA. And what they've been able to do is now they've been able to map family relationships onto some of these cemeteries, these around Stonehenge from the Bronze Age. So we know that there's groups of people buried that are connected, that have family relationships. They can literally map the family relationships onto the onto the landscape. And it's just fascinating. That's, and and yeah. we, we're starting to get this also for even earlier sites, from sites from the early Neolithic as well. So this has completely changed our story of, of what is happening at Stonehenge and around it. And and there's a lot of other types of, of sort of science. That one is fascinating because it's really personal. It's really kind of specific human stories. But, um, you know, we have so many other things that we can, using science as we've been able to tell. And, and these are all things that we're featuring at the festival. So, for example, things like diets are really important. And and we know at Durrington Walls, which is the area people were living in, just a couple kilometers up the road from Stonehenge. So they were living there and feasting on a grand scale when they were probably building and using the final version of Stonehenge. And there's tons of animal bones from there. Those have been really fascinating too, because they can also do isotope analysis on animal bones. And so they can see where animals come from. And there's theories that some of these animals might've come from quite long distance, maybe as far as Scotland, that's a bit being debated about, but you know, we're getting animals being moved with people but we also can analyze the pots. The pots are used for cooking. And we there's something called lipid analysis, which is the type of fats that gets soaked into the pots when you're cooking. And you mm-hmm. can see what kind of food they're actually eating and the diet they have. And so things like, you know, they're having stews, they're having kind of stews with meat in them. And they're also boiling milk to make cheese and, and things like that. So again, this is very, very high level scientific techniques. Mm-hmm. And we also have people who are doing ancient environmental analysis. So looking at soil deposits and, you know, things like snails in the, in the soil and pollen remains. And, and so we can reconstruct what, what the landscape actually looks like, which again is incredibly fascinating. And around Stonehenge is incredibly important because we have these large scale monuments, you know, where these monuments in open landscapes, were they surrounded by forests as most of Britain was covered in forests at the time. And through that, we know that we're dealing with a place that was grasslands, that was an open landscape, which would have been so unique at that time in prehistory and probably one of the reasons why this place was so important. And then also looking at the stones themselves, the stones that were used to build the monument, where did they come from? How were they utilized? You know, where, how did they go and get them and move them and the engineering around that? And we can do analysis now of the stone composition using specialist equipment that looks at the actual um, sort of molecules in the stone and do exact almost fingerprinting of the stones and where they were found. So this has also been groundbreaking. And just a couple of years back, we have found the actual location where the Saracens came from in the West Woods um, near um, Marlborough. So not not actually that far from Avebury, interestingly, about yes. 25 kilometers away. So 
all of this is all really new stuff. And now we're looking at the altar stone and you're getting new information about that. And that might be a stone that comes from a completely different location. And so, and also another really fascinating thing is the scanning of the landscape using things like LIDAR. So this broad land um, ways of scanning the landscape, non-invasive, using machinery that can see into the ground and look at differences in the surface and if there's underlying holes and things like that. And we realized, for example, that around Durrington Walls, there's a massive set of pits all around the outside of that. We don't know what these were used for. Sort of a circle, isn't it? Circle of it's a ma- um, pits. Exactly, it's a massive additional circle that we didn't know existed, um, and we only know through this sort of scanning. So we keep on discovering more and more about the landscape and the people who use the landscape, and it really is a scientific revolution that will continue to develop and grow as as the techniques and the science develops. So leaving no stone unturned, I suppose, in in the pursuit of (laughs) scientific truth over Stonehenge. That's really fascinating. So many different ways of researching the landscape and all the people who were connected to it. How is all this being communicated to the public during the festival then, Jennifer? Well, I think that's the really exciting thing is that we have a lot of these researchers who are doing this cutting-edge research. Uh, research coming to speak to the public. And and what's been really lovely is working with our colleagues at Cambridge and all the other universities and heritage institutions is that they're so excited to come and talk about their research and really, you know, explain to people kind of what they've been doing and what this tells us about prehistoric archaeology, but also Stonehenge. So it's a real chance to get behind those headlines because, you know, Stonehenge is so famous. We get the headlines, but people don't necessarily really understand what it means. So this is a chance to actually talk to the people undertaking this research and getting really an in-depth look at what they're doing. So in terms of talks, how long would they last? Do we know yet? So we've got, there are going to be talks that take place on Saturday and Sunday. The talks are probably going to be between 25 and 30 minutes long so they're not going to be too long and they're they're definitely aimed at a you know a non-expert audience so anybody who enjoys the things that they hear on this podcast it's exactly the sort of the English heritage podcast it's exactly the sort of content and that that kind of level of of detail that that you'll get and we've got amazing talks that are coming up about the geology of the sarsen stones, the Bronze Age artifacts. There's going to be another talk about the sun and the moon at Stonehenge, the archaeology of skyscapes, you know, recent discoveries as well. So there's loads and loads of talks. Um, most of the activities will be hands-on though. And of course, there are going to be special tours of the stone circle and of the landscape as well. So if you want to kind of put your walking boots on and and get out and about, that's part of it. And then there'll be Neolithic pottery and cooking demonstrations, thatching, flint napping, the surveying, you know, the LIDAR, the LIDAR research that Jennifer was talking about that's able to penetrate the ground, you know, with lasers is part of what people will be able to to learn about and, and, and try out a little bit themselves, um, some of that technology. I think there are about 35 different activities happening across the two days. So I think people will be spoiled for choice, but they may have to make some difficult decisions about what they're <laughs> going to see. I think it might be difficult to do everything, but you know, I think that's, that's great. If there are any uh, history teachers or head teachers listening who'd like to organize a trip for schools can can schools get involved in the two days 
The two days are, are, are mainly aimed at general members of the public. So if teachers want to send out notices to families that they should be coming, that they'd like to go, they can do that. But we actually have two days which are specifically focused on schools on the Thursday and the Friday. So generally, there's a lot of ways for schools to get involved at Stonehenge. And the best thing, if you are a teacher or a parent who wants to support your school or your class, your child's class coming to Stonehenge, then have a look at the learning section of the Stonehenge pages on our website. And there's loads of information about our fantastic hands-on learning programs and, and everything like that. And schools can visit Stonehenge for free. That's really important that we offer free education visits at over 100 English heritage sites, including those sites that normally have an admissions fee. So Stonehenge is one of those sites and schools can visit free, although it's really essential that you pre-book. We also offer for schools subsidized expert-led workshops called discovery visits, and that's on offer sort of all, all throughout the academic year. In relation to the festival, there's a special festival program for schools as well. And so, again, the learning section of the English Heritage website has information. So what we will be offering for schools, there's going to be a kind of a schools engagement day where classes that visit are going to have an opportunity to go into the pop-up planetarium with Bournemouth University. And they're going to be doing archaeology-based activities with Wessex Archaeology. And Jennifer's also um, supporting our schools program with sort of talks and tours. There's also going to be a careers panel so students can find out about the different pathways into STEM and into heritage. And our experts, the expert academics and our own staff experts are going to be participating on that. And as well, we're running an, an event which is exclusive for teachers on the evening of the 8th, which is going to be focusing on stargazing at the monument. So that will help teachers to see the benefits of Stonehenge as a site to consider for astronomy studies, which is a new part of, sort of expanded part of the curriculum. So all of this is is available for teachers as well. We really wanted to have a, a focused, bespoke program for schools that would really suit their needs and make sure it worked with the curriculum really well, and then have something that was a little more open and flexible for a broader audience, you know, family visitors, but also groups of friends who want to come and, and have a bit of fun as well. And you mentioned STEM regarding the educational side there, that's science, technology. Engineering and mathematics. Engineering so, and mathematics, so from, yeah. From 2025, we'll be adding a whole new suite of schools programs at Stonehenge around science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. So that's STEM. And that's going to draw on some of the incredible science that people will be encountering at the Festival of Neolithic Ideas. And that is part of a new strand of activity that English Heritage is pioneering called STEM in Heritage, which is really about augmenting and supplementing, adding to the amazing array of history and geography and, and humanities-focused schools activities that we offer, we're, we're now also beginning to develop more curriculum-linked resources related to STEM. And we think that's really important because it will make school visits more multidisciplinary, and that hopefully makes them better value for money for schools when they come. But also, you know, it's just a huge part of what we do. And STEM is a really great way into heritage. You don't have to study history if you want to pursue a career in heritage. And so we want to create as many pathways into, you know, into the work that we do as we can. Of course, um, this leads us quite nicely on to how science and history can work together. So where can the scientists and historians of the future take our collective knowledge of Stonehenge? What does the future of scientific research in archaeology hold? What do you think, Jennifer? 
I think um, what's really exciting for me is that for the first time in archaeology, we really will be able to start to tell these personal stories in a completely new way and through things like ancient DNA analysis. And really recently, something fascinating they've just started to do is that they've been able to extract DNA from objects, from personal objects. So things like jewelry, they have been able to find fingerprints of DNA on objects. So we can actually start to, (laughs) it is remarkable and it's very, very new. And so even in things like burials where we might, you know, the bones might not always survive. If we have something like a piece of stone or, or a piece of jewelry that is a bit porous, that could have absorbed someone, someone's DNA, we'll get the story. And, you know, for archaeologists, this is incredibly fascinating because not only people move around, objects move around, especially personal objects like pendants, jewelry, things like that. That might be things that were passed down through families. So we can start really telling personal stories in a completely new and exciting way. And, and this technology is just going to continue to develop. And I think for places like Stonehenge, you know, Stonehenge is a protected site, you know, having things that are non-invasive techniques are really incredibly important. So all this kind of um, scanning, imaging, you know, things where we can extract information without having to dig a big hole is incredibly important. And, and that is really developing. And as I said, you know, even the information about the stones where we're having researchers come to look at the altar stone, you know, just through using a type of spectrometry, a special type of spectrometry. Um, so it's going to get incredibly exciting to continue to do some of this stuff and, and also to look back at things that have been studied previously. So for example, the kind of archaeoastronomy, you know, now we have new techniques to even study that. So even to look closer at the connection between Stonehenge and monuments and the stars, the moon, the sun. We're, we're developing new ideas around that and new ways of studying that. So I think we're only getting a taster of what is to come as far as really telling these extremely incredible stories about you know, our human past, our history, our, and our connection to these special places. So Dominique, how can people get involved in person? I suppose it's, um, well... Get your diaries out is the first thing, the 11th yep. and 12th okay. of November, and um, and make a trip. Get on our website, book a ticket. Admission is free to the festival is free with admission to Stonehenge. So you can get your Stonehenge tickets in the usual way. I think there's a discount if you book online. And of course, as ever, admission to Stonehenge is free if you're an English Heritage member. So you'll find the festival program on our website. And, you know, there's just lots to do. There'll be displays and activities. And of course, everything that is normally at Stonehenge is also going to be going on as well. So it's, I think it'll be a, a great day out. Now, um, among the experts that you've mentioned, will you be both there? Can people meet you and, and talk to you? I will be there all weekend giving tours of the stones with my colleague, um, Heather Sabir. So please come along and get a special tour of the stones, some insights into the circle itself. And um, I am also hoping to go to a number of activities and pop in and, and see them for myself. And, and I'm happy to talk to people and answer any questions they might have. Okay, so Jennifer's going to be there. I'll be there as well. And so please, you know, if you see me, do come to me, uh, talk to me. I am a short, very curly haired New Yorker. Jennifer is really the one who's the brains, whose brains you want to pick if you have a question about <laughs> life in prehistoric times. But I'm just so excited about the festival. And I really just can't wait to hear what everybody thinks. So um, please just come and say hi. It's a wonderful opportunity for us who are mostly kind of behind the scenes 
to meet our members, to meet people who are really interested in the work that we do. And it's, it's going to be a real treat for us as well. Yes. And Jennifer, I think you've got a Southern Californian twang, haven't you? I do. I do. Yeah. It's quite funny to two sort of Americans talking about Stonehenge. <laughs> it just shows what an iconic monument it is. We've traveled all this way to work on it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's, that's the global appeal, isn't it, really? Hopefully you'll um, bump into a, a few people from the States or North America. Definitely. Um, and of course, yes, anyone is welcome. Finally, if people want to find out a bit more about prehistory through the English Heritage Podcast, I can think of a few episodes that I've worked on obviously I've worked on all of them but um, that are worth listening to and I think probably one of the ones that relates to the new science uh, finding the sarsen stones a journey to Stonehenge episode 76 was a good one because that was brand new science back in I think 2020 can you think of any others that you would recommend people to sort of swat up on before they come along to the festival I'm a real geek and sucker when it comes to astronomy. So for me, number 16, which is uh, called The Skies Above Stonehenge with the astronomer Maggie Adderin Palcock would be one of my favorite ones. But I think, you know, there's another one on summer solstice, which I think is number 12. Another one based on an exhibition that we recently did about Stonehenge and prehistoric Japan. There's about a dozen different Stonehenge related episodes on the podcast and they're all really brilliant. There's one on winter solstice. I think that's number 141. I think we can give people, uh, maybe there's a, a few different links or lists we can give to people at the, you know, in the, in the text below the podcast information so that they can find out more, but it's just such a fascinating monument. And, and I think for me, the, what's so exciting about it is that the more you learn about it, the more sort of the more interesting it becomes and the more questions it raises so it's kind of just never stops giving for me yes it's as i've said on previous episodes it's the mystery of history which keeps you digging and wanting to find out more and jennifer you uh, starred on a previous episode with us didn't you um, where we went out into the landscape in south oxfordshire and that was sort of sort of neolithic related as well wasn't it yeah, no, that is that is another fascinating place. I'm looking at Uffington, the White Horse. And I mean, in some ways that is kind of connected to Stonehenge in, in the sense that we think that horse represented a sort of Bronze Age mythology around the movement of the sun over the course of a day and connected to sort of sort of a series of animals and the horse was the key one. So in a sense, it's kind of a monument down the road that is is continues a lot of these ideas that we get at Stonehenge about this importance of the sun to people's sort of ideas around the world and the, and the way the world worked. So yeah, definitely do tune in. And also there's they did some amazing new style um, dating technique to understand that that horse is actually prehistoric as well. So again, kind of cutting edge science. But um, I was also going to suggest if any of the listeners want uh, more of a background to the Neolithic period, the period when they built Stonehenge, um, there's a great episode, episode 148, where you can hear all about the Neolithic and what was happening then. Yes, you can ask the experts or, or listen to the experts answer your questions. And we'll have more of those episodes coming up in the next few months, I'm sure. So thank you very much, both of you, for taking the time to talk us through the Stonehenge Festival of Ideas on at Stonehenge in southwest Wiltshire in southwest England on the 11th and 12th of November. I think it's going to be a really exciting event, or series of events, in fact. So thanks a lot for your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much.
listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be profiling a one-time owner of the Isle of Wight, who was also one of the most powerful women of the medieval period. Without this unexpected turn of events, Isabella was now in line. And it was actually Carisbrook Castle that she chose ultimately as the centre of her estates. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>